The Merger Masters podcast series continues this week with Drew Figdor of TIG Advisors. We discuss activism, his methods for assessing risk, and the role that both ego and fear play in the minds of fund managers. I'm Mike Samuels, founder and portfolio manager of Broom Street Capital, and this is According to Sources for the week of February 10th, 2019. It's crossing the tape right now. Let me explain what's happening here. Some breaking news to share with you this morning. M&A related. There's good activism. I think eBay is in that situation. They got a jewel in PayPal. There's bad activism. Unfortunately, JCPenney was a dying company. Examples of activism gone awry. It was not a surprise to me that that deal fell through. Hello and welcome to According to Sources, a podcast devoted to deal speculation, merger arbitrage, activism, and the sources that both cover and surround it. Before I get to the interview, it's been a few weeks since I've weighed in on some of the special situations and spreads that I'm currently playing or not playing. And as a reminder, one of the reasons I started this podcast was to voice my opinions on deals and see what might come back. So without a doubt, the most emails and tweets I've received this week have revolved around Bristol Myers and Seldrin and the new presence of Starboard. And I honestly have been asking myself, in terms of putting on this spread, what am I afraid of? What am I afraid is going to happen here? What can Starboard do? It'd be one thing if Bristol Myers had received a bid and refused to engage. But none of the reporting has said anything like that or anything close to that. Hypothetically, if Merck was getting rebuffed by executives at Bristol Myers, that's the kind of story, at least to me, that would be strategically leaked and end up in the Wall Street Journal. And we're just not seeing it. So if I had to guess, I believe Jeff Smith thinks this is just a free call option. Fund managers seem to like the bristol Celgene combination. So owning Bristol, the buyer, doesn't pose too much of a risk. And by advertising that you're long, You might attract other activists, or you might even attract perhaps a strategic. So you're long, you get the benefit of owning Bristol and the combination, and you get the optionality, even if it's so small, of Bristol Myers catching a buyer. So in the event another activist shows up, like a Carl Icahn or a Corbex, I'll use those events as opportunities to put the spread on as it widens out. Couple of other names I want to touch on. Nielsen, NLSN, David Faber weighed in this week. He says the deal process seems to be progressing. He says there was a price tag of, quote, 30 or maybe a little higher. The question remains is this simply a replay of the Arconic sales process? Personally, I'd rather wait for some more clarity on timing before I buy Nielsen here. Zayo Group, Z A Y O. This is another name that. Everyone seems to be discussing very strange, bizarre situation, at least to me. Reporting has said that there are activists, yet no one has filed. Funds such as Blackstone and KKR, public companies like Google and CenturyLink have shown, quote, interest, according to reporting. And yet at a recent conference, CEO Dan Caruso said, quote, investors should be confident that our board would engage with any party that makes a credible proposal that appropriately values the company. So the whole thing to me at this point either seems hostile and they seem far apart on price or maybe this is just a lot more smoke than fire in Zayo. So I'm staying away for now. And lastly, I've spoken several times on this podcast that one of my biggest positions is Barnes & Noble. Whether it's valid or not, there is no question that the stock's perceived buyout chances were in a way tied to the process of GameStop, which of course failed. When GameStop couldn't find a, a buyer... 
the thought process becomes, well, if one melting ice cube can't sell itself, this one probably won't either. Now, I go back into the original reasons why I like this situation. Why have so many activists and high-profile entrepreneurs wanted this asset over the years? John Malone, Ron Burkle, Tom Sandell, Janum was there for a stretch. These have all made plays for this company in a post-Amazon world. But the biggest differentiator, in my opinion, between the GameStop process and the Barnes & Noble process is the presence of Leonard Riggio in the auction. My perception has always been that this company is going private. Where I worry is at what price. Okay, before I get to the interview, as a reminder, any feedback or questions are always greatly appreciated. So email me. The uh, handle is michael at according to sources podcast.com. And while this is a weekly podcast, I often tweet thoughts in real time. And the handle on that Twitter is at accord to sources, A C C O R D T O sources. Uh, and now on to the Merger Mastered podcast series this week with Drew Figdor of TIG Advisors. The way I'd like to begin and the way that I've begun each one is each chapter begins with a quote from the fund manager. Yeah. So I'd like to read yours if that's okay. Yeah, sure. You said the way that guys lose a lot in this business is by going down swinging on a deal they held before it broke. This job is not about rocket science. It's about hustle, hard work, diligence, and no ego. So first, I just wanted you to extrapolate on the idea that ego plays in this business. Sure. You know, I think the way people look at it is they say, this deal is different. So like in GE Honeywell, people were saying Jack Welch has to get this deal done because it's his swan song. And in effect, what was going on at the time was the antitrust theory that there wasn't an antitrust issue in the EU was wrong because there was a $300 million divestiture package. And then there was a 500 and then a 700 and then a billion three. So at each stage, the thesis that we had was being tested and was already wrong. Mm. And so our view is that minimizing losses is the key to the business and that this time is different is the phrase that kills you. And really the deal spread had hope priced into it. And hope by definition is already mispriced. If you're hoping for a deal to get done or an event to happen, then you're mispricing the ultimate risk. And you're mispricing it on a consistent basis. You don't know whether the GE Honeywell deal will be the one that breaks or whether it's a uh, the next one. But if you try to trade those deals consistently through time, you know that there's a problem with that deal. And so your position size should be going down instead of up. Do you think that uh, a certain degree of ego stops us from changing our minds? Yeah, I mean, ego is uh, the people that I think do poorly in this business are the ones that say, I'm smarter than everyone else. And so that really stops them from checking their own thesis and their own questions. Mm. So uh, if you think you're smarter than everyone else, and then you're not going to be asking the questions. And sometimes the answers aren't what you want to hear. Right. That's the thing. I feel like a mistake that I can make is that I'll listen more to the facts that agree with my position and ignore the ones that don't. Right. And I think the quote says that I start with the assumption that the market's right and I'm wrong. Right. Right. And so what you told me last week 
is not important as what it is today. And when you get closer to events, the information you learn is more accurate and more predictive. So people who rely upon what they learned a week ago or two weeks ago are ultimately going to fail more often. Mm. And so our thesis is we assume we're wrong and we're checking that every day. Mm. There was something else that you mentioned later in the chapter, and the quote was, you can't commoditize fear. What do you mean by that? When I think back to the business in 1986, the way we collected information was very different. The access to that information was different. The number of players that was doing it was different. And so the opportunity set was much greater. And spreads back then with higher interest rates were a lot higher. Mm. Um, when you roll forward, the business has become more commoditized because there are rules-based uh, investors uh, with more capital. There is much more capital doing it in general. And they're all looking for the safe deal. And one of the things that's interesting to me about risk is I don't believe safety comes from safe deals. I think it comes from more alpha opportunities that we're looking for. And so the buy and hold merger arbitrage spread business is somewhat of a beta trade. Our view is that having a diversified portfolio of large alpha complex deals, really because the market prices risk in a nonlinear way. Mm -hmm. So a safe deal today trades at miraculously tight uh, spreads. Um, complex deals trade at five to 10 times what that perceived safe deal is. And so I would rather invest in a portfolio where the gross spread is 10% and the outcome is derived by how well the team does research and how we can manage risk than putting it all in uh, safe deals. So then my question to you about that would be, you know, your fund is of large size. I was reading that you do have position limits that you'll set for yourself. So I guess my question is there aren't that many of those I guess, hairier deals that yield 10%. So do you find yourself constrained? Uh, no, it doesn't take many of them to, to produce significant results. And just to sort of go back for a second about the commoditization of fear, the way hostile deals trade, and even the complex situations in today's market, they're all trading, Celgene is 14% gross spread. They're all trading at the very same time as the theoretically safe deal is trading at a 1% or 0 to 2% growth spread. So I find it fascinating that in a marketplace with low interest rates and a lot of capital chasing safe deals, at that very same moment, uh, you saw the Aetna, Express Scripts, all of these deals were trading at exceptional spreads. So the opportunity set for what I like to look at is just as good today as it was in 1985. Mm. And that's what I sort of mean about uh, fear trades in a nonlinear way. Do you think that fear kind of has a halo effect? Meaning so many people were burned by a hairy deal like NXPI. Yeah. That, that perhaps as the year went on in 2018, they said, I'm not doing any more of these. And therefore, the opportunities get even greater. 
Sure. I mean, one of the favorite trades is to do the opposite of what everyone else is doing. So when Shire AbbVie deal broke, all merger arbitrage spreads widened, including Covidi and Medtronic, which was a similar inversion. Mm-hmm. And the spread went from 3% gross to over 12% gross because of that event. Medtronic, if you get them on the phone, would say that they've already done the math and they thought the math impacting them was different. And so there seemed to be the ability to fight at least to close their deal and a commitment. And the spread was four times as wide because of that event. Even the ones that weren't related were wider. So all merger arbitrage spreads widened as people unwound their books. And that creates an opportunity to put risk on. For us, we're always looking for the moment where the market declines 10% and all of the portfolio of deals out there widen. So, I mean, going back to the statement of waiting for the market to come in, I mean, there's been moments, 2017, the last felt like there, I mean, it just, we never got a a 3% pullback. So what do you do with your capital in those situations where you're waiting for an opportunity and it seems to never come? I'm trying to remember who said sitting on your hands is not a bad investment strategy. We're very comfortable waiting for the opportunities. Our portfolio has often, I think in December, we were only 50% gross long invested and our returns you can look up were fairly attractive. Mm -hmm. Our returns are generated by events. The market turmoil creates better spread. So the volatility in December, I'm sure, helped keep Shire at very wide levels and some of the other opportunities we were doing. Mm -hmm. So Shire was interesting because there was an activist shareholder against the deal. The spread was exceptionally wide going into the shareholder vote. And the outcome of that vote was a de minimis vote for the activist, even if it was him that they voted no on, it was overwhelmingly voted for. So the perception of fear in the marketplace priced something at very wide levels that was truly researchable. You could meet with the activist, see what his position was, and see if it had enough credibility or momentum to justify the spread that started at 18% gross and even the just before the vote was, I think, 8%. So take me through the dynamic of something like that. In this case, the, the activist was the founding family of Takeda, if that's correct. He said he represented some of the family. Right. So he didn't represent, uh, there was an 8 to plus percent with a couple constituencies if he had them, he would have come with them in the initial release, and all he had was, I think, 130 people added up to 1%. Right. So do you find him, or does he find you? We're looking for him. The approach that we try to use is to travel, to go to meetings, and test our theories in uh, globally. So I find that if you go to London for a meeting, the number of people that make that effort drop substantially. And so that gives you more of a time opportunity to test your your questions and your theories 
And so our approach is to meet directly with the regulators, the customers, the competitors, and try to use that time to test our theories. Mm. Have you ever in your career felt like you met with, let's say, management and felt like at the end of the day or you found out later that they had misled you or perhaps even just lied to you? Sure. I can think of some examples that happened this year where the hostile suitor was representing that he was a committed long-term buyer. And when he walked from the deal, this was Meg Energy, uh, Husky Oil Mm -hmm. bid for Meg Energy. Husky was representing that what was one of the factors was the change in the Alberta government policy towards the oil sands. That policy happened like a month and a half earlier. Usually we use the rule of you use it or lose it. So you can't declare a material adverse clause six months later. Mm. You can only say it's valid one to two weeks after. And so it seems that their intent was less interested in closing the deal. They used their own condition to terminate something that most people would have considered extending. So you have a process at your firm called the Experience Transformer. What is that? And sort of take me through it. It's usually for some big opportunity we missed. So it's for us to learn as a team together. We spend a lot of time doing Experience Transformers, and we just did an off-site to talk about what we did right for 2018 and what we didn't do right for 2018. An Experience Transformer usually comes when We miss an opportunity or lost money on something, and it starts with what we did right. So from the beginning, it's one not allowed to happen until 4 o'clock because the objective of me shouting in the morning just being upset really changes the dynamic of the shop, both for myself, I'm not looking for opportunities And frankly, what caused me to be mad is typically an opportunity. Mm. So I think in the chapter, it talks about how really things that go wrong are where you should be looking for the opportunity. And it makes sense because when things go wrong, it's usually sudden. And so the price movement is substantial. And that's usually an opportunity unless it's, you know, when you're walking in and it's already dead deal. Right. Let's say, hypothetically, I took a poll of your employees and I said, describe Drew in two adjectives as a boss. What do you think they would say? Intense. Hopefully fair. I mean, I'd say we really do a lot of work. Our investment process is a verbalization of the investment thesis. So we work together discussing all the day, the deals and the information we learned and testing whether we think that is, from our own perspective, significant enough for an investment or not. We work together very closely, so hopefully they like it. Otherwise, they shouldn't stay. What do you think is the most frustrating part of this business? Clearly, with the mistakes you make and if you're making them on a consistent basis. I didn't get a lot of time to test it, but when we were doing Pfizer-Allergan, one of the things we learned, and, and one of the my traders 
actually made a t-shirt that memorialized the quote that I said, you can't fight the president, don't fight the president, because he changes the rules if he wants to, and he can, he'll win. So I shouldn't be doing more deals like that if that is the risk of the deal. For us, hostile stock swaps are much more difficult to do. I should be wary of them in the future because how I hedge them and whether I hedge them enough has been a problem in the past. To the the line, don't fight the president, I mean, I could have made the argument in, let's say, Cigna Express Scripts that the president seems to have a, a bit of an agenda for the PBMs. Would that keep you out of a trade like that? No, I mean, uh, I'm always drawn to spreads. So it, uh, it says in the chapter, there isn't a deal that I like or don't like. It's really about the opportunity that uh, is presented. So if the spread is 15% gross, I probably like it. Okay. Because I feel that the ability to do that research and to trade that risk is inherently a good portfolio. So everyone that I've interviewed so far in their career had a particular painful memory about one trade. And for some people, it was the UAL buyout or LBO went wrong. What for you would be the painful trade memory that sticks out in your head? Well, again, it goes back to where I did something wrong. So uh, obviously, I guess, uh, Athabasca was a deal where the company was putting an asset back to a Chinese acquirer. It was for a billion dollars. We thought they would take the money, buy back stock, and divest the other part of their business in a different oil field. And so we thought there was significant upside. And I hedged the position with other indexes, and those indexes were one, high-quality indexes. And so the tracking on the way down for oil was poor. The high-quality companies maintained much of their value, and the smaller ones lost a significant amount. I was right on the trade. The billion-dollar put mm -hmm. was uh, regulatory-wise successfully done, and yet I lost a bunch of money. Part of that was when something doesn't reach your levels, you need to sort of be more ruthless about selling it because I thought when they got the puts put back, the stock would go up 10% or 20%. And instead, it was up modestly. And so I kept the position and then watched it deteriorate over time and never really did a good job of risk reduction. So from that, one of the things we've implemented as a team is we have a T minus three, T plus three trade where when the event happens, you have to sell 30% of that position because if you're wrong and it's not going up, it's not going to get better. You're already wrong. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I should be taking more consistent action. Okay. I want to talk about activism for a second. It's not something that you guys do a lot of, but you have done some. I saw you guys were involved in Intel Altera and then yeah. Zales uh, Signet. Why isn't it a strategy that you employ more? 
And when do you find it to be the time to strike? For us, it's all about when we feel like we've been wronged. So in a merger process, uh, in Zale, we thought that they undervalued the synergies and that the buyer was benefiting substantially more than the seller and that they didn't bargain for the appropriate price. And we tried to say no to the deal to renegotiate that opportunity for us. Ultimately, we did not get 50%. I think we got 45 So then we decided to go a different route and take it to an appraisal, which I can't talk about. Mm-hmm. And why do you think it's a strategy? Uh, oh, you said it's something when you feel wronged, and I guess you haven't felt wronged in a while. Yeah, I mean, in Altera, we had talked to a lot of the institutional shareholders. And uh, from those discussions, we knew that they would be happy selling it at 47 to 50. And when it turned out that they were, uh, according to the newspapers, turning down 51 or higher. Well, yeah, it was a discussion of 51 to 54. I thought that was uh, nuts. And I wasn't getting any uh, response from the companies, obviously. Really, we did the board proposal as a referendum for the long-only shareholders to have a platform to be able to speak out, both publicly and privately. And I must say I was surprised at how little public support, because the tender offer result that we got was pretty low. I think it helped the process, uh, and ultimately they signed the deal, so hopefully it helped. In terms of activism, we're seeing for the first time an activist, in this case it's Elliot, they take a stake and then they roll that stake with the private equity company. We've never seen anyone do this before. They're also raising $2 billion specifically for Elliot to do this. What do you think of that strategy? Well, first off, I love activism, both positive and negative for a deal. And that's even if I'm in the deal already and the activist is agitating against it because it changes the risk-reward parameters dramatically and increases the research content dramatically. So the ability for us to meet with the solicitors and the management of the company and make our own judgment as to whether they want to increase the price of the deal or will be successful voting against a deal like Shire is dramatic. I mean, no offense to the activists in that uh, deal, but there wasn't a strong plan on uh, the voting. They didn't get any of the family to commit to it. There was no proxy solicitor. The process seemed unlikely to be successful. And yet, it kept the market spread dramatically wide. And that's a great opportunity. Mm. Um, And I've seen it change deal prices. And so it's it's a, again, even if it's against the deal, it's helpful. Right. The reason that I'm bringing this up is yeah. that I feel like uh, the public company has always had ammo against the activists. And that ammo is you're a renter, you're in for the short term, you don't care about the vision 10 years from now. And Elliot is saying, hey, we're activists, we're proposing change, and we're going to take this private and we're going to roll our stake in with that. And so in a way, it shuts up management because what can they say? 
Well, they can say that they don't think the value is attractive, and he has to ultimately follow through and end up buying it. When I think about some of the deals that are have been done, the market assumed price started at a much higher level than where it ended up. Mm-hmm. So that doesn't make a warm and fuzzy experience. So he may be successful, but I might not be profitable. Mm. So as a as a process, it's not one that I have a lot of interest in. You know, clearly what you're looking for is strategics or activists. It's very hard for us on the outside to know whether he really wants to buy it and will follow through or wants to agitate for someone else and whether they'll be successful. So the ones that are more interesting to me are activists on shareholder votes and where they want to hold out for a higher price, like DVMT mm-hmm. went from a process in the beginning of the year, which is tough, whether the long-term value of that asset should collapse and the spread should collapse, and you're subject to risks that happened, which was even just market rumors about VMware causing that spread to blow out. Whereas later in the year, the process was, here's a proposal on the table and someone with enough shares and money to make a difference. And it was very successful, or at least successful for us as an investment. Who in this industry would you say you admire the most? Harvest Management, uh, Nat Bohr, Marjorie Gotchberg have been friends and mentors from way back to Bear Stearns a long time ago. There are certain people that I look to just for advice and respect a lot of the investment managers that were in the book because they've had long, successful careers. This is not a a merger ARB question. It's more of a broader markets question, but it's something Mm -hmm. that I think is important and I wanted to ask you. Which of these statements that I'm going to read feels more true to you? One, that a trade deal between the U.S. and China would mark the top of the markets for 2019 as other economic concerns remain. Or two, a trade deal would represent a huge overhang removed and possibly send the markets to all-time highs. I'm going to pick option two and caveat it by my abilities to fundamentally predict the market aren't very strong. And I think that's one of the hallmarks of what we try not to do is to have a market exposure. The correction that we've had already took a lot of the excess out of the market. And so, one, I think deal flow would benefit from that, clearly would benefit. That typically helps markets as premiums get paid and industries improve from that. It seems like deal flow in this year, 2019, has been slow. At least we're underinvested. Right. And uh, there's a fair amount of significant global uncertainty. And the merger market does quite poorly with macro uncertainty. The trade war and the government shutdown are not helpful. Okay. So... How did you choose Merger Arb? I was looking at your bio and saw you started in the strategic planning department of Gulf and Western. 
I was an internal cost accountant or financial analyst. That's not where you're ever going to tr truly succeed, or at least not for what I'm interested in, but also from a compensation level basis. If you follow the revenue, you'll be rewarded for your hard work. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I always enjoyed about this job is that it's not political. It's how well you you do. And so uh, removing the politics from the process is a wonderful thing. Because it's just at the end of the day a numbers game? So at the end of the day, it's just how well you achieve. And you get to see every day whether you're successful or not and learn from that process. And that's the thing I find the most fun about this job is that I've been doing it for 30 plus years and I'm learning every day. And I think that's unique in jobs. I don't know many people that enjoy uh, going to work on Monday. I know I do and I find that a lot of people in this business tend to like it. Every day is something that you'll learn about something new and how to improve on yourself and the team is not any different today than it was 10 years ago. There's mm -hmm. still things to do and to learn. What about just the business in general? Like, uh, how do you think, what, what's the biggest shift from when you started to what's happening now? Well, everybody knows most of what I know about a deal today versus 20 years ago when I was one of the few that knew about the about the deal or was invested in the deal. So how information is available and disseminated is drastically different. And it's in part why I've gone the other way with complexity because, as we talked about, you can't commoditize how people trade risk. They worry about it on a level that is on a portfolio, incorrect. And so really, if you think about portfolios um, and try to consistently sort of attack them, both in a positive way and a negative way, meaning deals that you like and deals that you don't like, you're really just trying to give yourself an edge over time. Mm -hmm. So if you're selling deals that are falling apart quicker on a, on a consistent basis, you're losing less money. And if you're taking more risk, it sounds sort of obvious, but people often get caught up in that this one is not different. Right. And so if you look at them and say they're all similar, I don't know which one is going to be unsuccessful, and therefore I'm going to sell that position down more. I might be wrong on GE Honeywell, but I won't be wrong on that portfolio of deals. In terms of disruptors, how much does, I'm trying to say this diplomatically, in Bristol-Myers, let's say, people mm -hmm. are concerned certain activists might just try to disrupt the deal. Right. Does it matter if, let's say for you, if Carl Icahn was a disruptor or if it was Jeff Smith? Does that change your opinion? Sure. You see what their track record is. You got to love Carl. He's tenacious. And not to say Jeff isn't. I'm just saying that when he he's going to put his money 
and put it down and follow that through. So you look at like what the track record is and and how they've done it. So it should make a difference. I mean, honestly, if you look at our activism, people haven't looked at that and said, you know, one of the things about the activism that is important for us is we're not doing it on a fundamental basis. So I have no skills of running a management of another company. And so I'm not going to be an activist where I think they should improve their business. Right. Whereas Jeff Smith is way better at that than I could dream about. Right. But it does make a difference because you're looking to see where they've been successful, where they have other assets. Right. So I always end the interview with five a little bit more personal questions mm-hmm. for, for the guests. So the first one I wanted to ask you, uh, favorite book and favorite movie in the last year? Uh, Jesse Livermore, who wrote The Reminiscences of a Stock Investor. Mm-hmm. And uh, favorite movie in the last year? Favorite movie and or TV show, something in the media. I'm thinking blind, blindsided. Which one was that? That was the one with the big football player. Oh, the blindsided blind side. Sandra Bullock by Sandra Bullock. Great um, story. In terms of uh, you're a very successful guy. In terms of personal indulgences, what is something you like to spend your money on? Typically, I've bought real estate, so I've got two nice houses, and uh, other than that, not much. I'm a car fanatic, so I've got a couple old classic cars. What was the last one you bought? A 67 Chevelle with an LS7 Corvette motor in it uh, with uh, 600 horsepower that you don't need. And uh, a 442 Oldsmobile. And so... uh, You don't keep these in the city, I guess. No. My whole family is pretty big car nuts. Okay. Favorite car of all time? Probably my first, which was uh, uh, Nova SS. Question three. Uh, I'm going to give you three scenarios. I'm going to ask you for a percentage likelihood they're going to happen. Okay. Okay. Uh, number one, Trump wins the 2020 election. Percentage chance you give it happening? I'm going to say 33. Okay. Question two, the Mexican border wall is ever built? Parts of it will be built. So you're like 100% that something gets built? Well, I wouldn't say 100%, but he really wants it. There are parts of the where I think that makes sense. And so uh, it seems like an outcome that could be a solution to the problem. Okay. Uh, and three, percentage chance that Howard Schultz gets 15% of the popular vote. If Ross Perot couldn't get it, Howard Schultz can't get it. Okay. Question four. If you could have dinner with anyone living or dead, who would it be? Buffett. Have you ever? No. Question five. If you weren't a fund manager, what do you think you'd be doing? If I could be athletically prone, it would be some competitive sport, but I'm not that athletic, uh, so teaching. Okay. And uh, this is the last bonus one. What would you say in your career or your life are you the most proud of? Uh, My family. I have three boys and a great wife and a great 
partnership with my wife. I always tell people that, you know, she's really the source of the strength because we're all in it together. Mm. And I had the the luck of working for uh, Carl Tiedemann, who had a similar sort of approach. In 30 years that I worked with him, he never came to my office and said, man, you really screwed that up. He would always come in and say, you'll get him tomorrow, champ. Don't worry about it. And so that really, that powers you to achieve more and really take more risk because it's all about taking risk. The only way to succeed and to grow is to take risk. And you need the right people with you and behind you to to achieve that. Okay. Drew, thanks so much. Awesome opportunity. I appreciate it. Thank you. My thanks again to Drew Figdor of TIG Advisors. Once again, any emails or feedback greatly appreciated can be sent to michael at accordingtosourcespodcast.com. That concludes According to Sources, the podcast for February 10th, 2019, and I will see you next week.